You are listening to National Security Law Today. The following discussion was recorded on April 15th, 2023. The latest round of intense fighting in Sudan had just begun, and it was unclear what role the Russian private military company, the Wagner Group, would play as hostilities escalated. Therefore, although we discuss the Wagner Group in this episode, and the conversation touches on Wagner's activities in Africa, the focus is mostly on Ukraine. To be clear, the deterioration of the situation in Sudan is both deplorable and geostrategically significant. Sudan signed the Abraham Accords just two years ago, and in February finalized texts for a formal peace agreement with Israel. This new chapter in Sudanese civil war is looking to be devastating not only to that country, but to regional stability in Northeast Africa and the Middle East. But for this episode of NSLT, we focus on Wagner and war crimes in Ukraine, the debate surrounding whether to designate Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization or Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, the significance of such designations legally and politically, and the status of the International Criminal Court's arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Adam Perlman, filling in this week for our regular host, Elisa Poti. It's been a couple of months since the podcast focused on Ukraine, and obviously a lot has happened since then in terms of how allegations of war crimes continue to pile up there, assistance to Russia from China, an ICC indictment of Vladimir Putin, and congressional hearings about whether the Wagner Group, or Wagner Group if you prefer, already designated as a transnational criminal organization, should also be designated as a foreign terrorist organization. There also has been a major leak of U.S. government documents that reportedly relate to Ukraine and or the actions of the Wagner Group. So should the Wagner Group be designated as an FTO? Is Congress's involvement in the matter helpful or not? What is the current state of play with war crimes and atrocity crimes in Ukraine? What has happened on the ICC front in the months since it issued an arrest warrant against President Putin? And what is likely to happen in the coming months? Our fantastic guests for this episode are Arthur Traldi and John Dermody. Arthur, one of my colleagues at Lexpac Global Services, is a seasoned international lawyer and rule of law expert. Arthur served for seven years as a prosecutor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, and before that served in chambers for the Tribunal for Rwanda, the ICTR. He's a sought-after expert by governments and NGOs in need of training or assistance with international criminal, human rights, and rule of law matters. Among other things, he's a senior counsel at the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, sits on the ABA's Central and Eastern European Law Initiative Council, and is a former co-chair of the International Criminal Law Committee of the ABA's Section on International Law. John's a counsel at O'Melveny & Myers, advising clients on a range of national security-related issues from cyber and privacy to economic sanctions. His credentials in those fields indeed run deep, having served as Deputy Legal Advisor at the White House National Security Council, and before that as an Attorney Advisor in the Intelligence Law Section of DHS's General Counsel's Office, an Associate Deputy General Counsel at the Department of Defense, and as a Law Clerk for the Special Court of Sierra Leone. I should note right off the bat that the views the three of us express on this episode are our own and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of any government agency or other organization we have worked for during the course of our careers in public service and in private practice. Also, and this is important, none of us has any way to confirm, deny, verify, or in any way assess any of the information contained in the leaked classified documents 
all of which significantly postdates the access any of us may have had to that type of information. And with that, Arthur and John, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Good to be here, Adam. Thank you, guys. With Wagner, let's start with an element that really hasn't been discussed on this podcast to date. Wagner is a Russian private military group that came to prominence in about 2014 with Russia's invasion of the Crimea. They were basically, we found the little green men that were all on the news at the time. It's run by or owned by a, a man named Evgeny Prigozhin, who has historic ties to Mr. Putin, although recent reporting suggests that may be hot and cold depending on the week. Wagner operates not only in Ukraine, but also Syria, Mali, Central African Republic, Sudan, and Libya. They've committed atrocities, massacres, rape, torture, kidnapping, sex trafficking, extrajudicial killings, political sabotage, and attempted assassinations. All of this has prompted several rounds of U.S. sanctions going back to 2017. And that tees up the first question. John, what has the United States been doing, particularly Treasury and the State Department on the sanctions front against Wagner, and has it been working? So there's probably two elements to your question there, Adam. First is, what have they been doing? And the second is, is it working? On what they've been doing, they've been pretty busy. So as you mentioned, back in 2017 was the first time Treasury sanctioned the Wagner Group. And they've continued to hit them in rolling rounds of sanctions in 2022. They've also sanctioned them uh, more recently, just earlier this year, and designated them as a transnational criminal organization for some of their activities that you mentioned, you know, taking place out outside of Ukraine, in Mali, in CAF, and in others. So there's been a great deal of attention on using sanctions to try to change their behavior and to sort of punish them for a lot of their activities. I mean, what's interesting there is um, you mentioned Prigozhin as being connected with the Wagner Group, that Wagner Group, and and that I think is a is a relationship that's been obscured over time, but has certainly become more clear as of late. I think one of the challenges that happens with sanctions that I certainly think Treasury and State are dealing with is identifying targets and applying pressure there. So with Prigozhin, yes, he's certainly involved with the Wagner Group, but he's been involved with all sorts of activities that the United States has taken umbrage with, including election interference with the Internet Research Agency. So he was sanctioned for those activities. He's sanctioned in relation to the Wagner activities. He's sanctioned uh, in, in general sort of related to Russian activities. So there are a lot of sanctioned packages that have been targeted Wagner, targeted at their sort of senior leadership targeted at supporting entities that are providing them material and funds and other types of support. But your second question, is it effective? I think that is a much more challenging question to answer. I mean, I think if it was sort of a binary of has it stopped them from engaging in the conflict in Ukraine? I think the answer there is no. It is certainly something that has added pressure and limited their ability to operate and places pressure on other countries and entities that might be willing to sort of cooperate with them. But I think fundamentally the challenge here is, is they've been around for a while. They're a very sophisticated organization, and they're an organization, because of the ties with Prigozhin, that have been dealing with U.S. sanctions for a long period of time. And so they have developed ways 
of minimizing their exposure to the, the U.S. banking system and minimizing their ways uh, of being sort of uh, pressured by these activities. And so I obviously think that sanctions are a necessary component of any of the activities that are taking place here. But it's hard to say that they've been sort of completely effective just because the conflict is still going. Um, I think, you know, there have been some frustrations in the U.S. government that these sanctions against sort of Russian more broadly and, and the defense sector in Russia has not been as effective as they were hoping. But again, it's difficult to tell with sanctions because oftentimes the space between what is happening and ultimately the outcome can be pretty distant and not necessarily sort of a clear line. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty consistent with any economic tools, right? The inputs and outputs, you often have a delta, that lag between cause and effect. On the, the Wagner front specifically, you know, Arthur, people often refer to them as mercenaries. And indeed, one of the leading pieces of legislation on the Hill refers to them as mercenaries. What significance does that label have, whether they are or aren't, you know, in a legal sense and under international law in particular? Thanks, Adam. I, I get to give a lawyer's favorite answer here, which is that it depends. And it depends because it's an international law question on what treaties that the relevant states have signed on to. The two primary treaties here are the Mercenary Convention and Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions. Additional Protocol 1 has a lot more states parties than the Mercenary Convention does, although as it happens, Ukraine is a party to both those treaties. There are some small differences between the two, but they each require you to prove all of four key things in order to show that someone is legally, rather than colloquially, a mercenary. You have to show that they're fighting primarily for financial motives, that they are in fact paid more than the official military forces are, that they're not part of the official military forces, and that they're not a national of a party to the conflict or a resident of territory controlled by a party to the conflict. You need to prove all four of those things. So if you fail one, you're out. But under those treaties, a mercenary would lose prisoner of war status if they were captured and lose lawful combatant status. Now, it's worth noting here that the United States is not a party to either of those treaties, and the DOD Law of War Manual takes the position that this is all wrong, that it incorporates what lawyers call use ad bellum considerations into rules governing use in bellow. That is, that in deciding what rights combatants have, it, it erroneously incorporates considerations of their motives for fighting. But for states that have adopted it, it's worth knowing that they do lose those rights, they do lose combatants privilege and do lose POW status. The other thing I wanna underscore here, because sometimes people do get a little confused about it, is that if you say it's not unlawful to use mercenaries, that doesn't mean mercenaries have a blank check to do whatever they want, or people you might consider colloquially to be mercenaries, have a blank check to do whatever they want during armed conflict. They're still bound by the typical rules. They have to attack only lawful military targets, provide prisoners their Geneva Convention pr protections, and follow all the other rules, and they can be prosecuted for war crimes if they violate those rules. But the general question, are they, what's the importance? It depends on the treaties, and the key, the key question is whether a state is signed on to treaties that makes them lose their combatant status. So, you know, the, the concept of a private military group, you know, or, or mercenaries, or obviously, it, it's certainly not new. How is Wagner different? John, Arthur, go for it. 
I, I think we can probably both sort of chime in here. The concept of a private military company certainly isn't new. I mean, these these types of, of outfits have existed for time in memoriam, but certainly in recent history. Thinking of an example that is close to sort of my experience with Sandline, which was a essentially private military corporation or company that was operating in the Sierra Leone conflict. A similar sort of model to, I think, what Wagner is sort of operating in, in the Sahel, in, in Mali and CAF, where they are taking advantage of a less than ideal security situation to strike agreements with the host countries to provide protection, to offer other sort of security services in exchange for in-kind contributions and access to gold resources, diamonds, those types of activities. And they can use that access to material to support their other activities. It also allows for ease of money laundering and, again, sort of insulating them from some of the, the economic sanctions and, and tools that the United States and others would want to use against them. I, mean, I think what is unique about the Wagner Group, and, and Arthur, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is their close ties to the Russian state and and sort of the actual sort of the Russian military. I know that one of the things that we dealing with a lot when I'm still in government was how do you deal with groups that are sort of acting as proxies that aren't sort of officially in the military or the intelligence services or just sort of one step out. And whether that's the Internet Research Agency, thinking in the context of cyber, whether that's sort of hackers that aren't part of the state security services, but are sort of given carte blanche to do that. How does that status change the ability to sort of bring force against them, particularly, I guess, Arthur, in, in the what you just sort of discussed about, of, are they going to be protected or not? Do they have less protections? Do they have more protections? Does it change sort of the political calculus if you are sort of going after these types of organizations that are that are aligned with the state? I'll maybe start with what's closest to my experience, which is the evidentiary calculus. And it definitely makes that more complicated because it provides kind of messier chain of command for a non-official group or a paramilitary group. That doesn't mean that state officials can't be held responsible for them. It just means that it's a harder job for lawyers, prosecutors, whoever, to establish how they exercise control or influence over the group in an attempt to hold them responsible. That's a good point for war crimes that might not necessarily apply to terrorism if they were to be considered to be terrorists, though, right? And Congress seems very clearly interested in designating them as a foreign terrorist organization, and there's proposed legislation to compel the Secretary of State to do just that. The Senate also passed a resolution last summer, the language of the resolution, called on the Secretary to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, which is an exceedingly rare designation in the U.S. that carries a lot of heft. I mean, there's four countries on the SST list right now, the state sponsors of terrorism list, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and Cuba, right? Sudan was, was uh, taken off, right. um, but with some of the activities that are happening today, we'll, we'll see whether uh, that changes the calculus. Well, and the discussion surrounding whether or not to take Sudan off the table is quite illustrative in terms of the political calculus that goes into it beyond what the legal threshold is for it. I mean, on Russia, the European Parliament 
call them a state-sponsored terrorism last November, but the EU has no legal framework to give that declaration any teeth, whereas the U.S. most certainly does. I mean, John, if we can break this down for a moment, the legal standard for an FTO is that, one, you have to be a foreign organization, and two, you have to either engage in or have the capability and intent to engage in terrorist activity that threatens U.S. nationals or national security. For a state sponsor of terrorism, like on its face, the legal threshold actually sounds lower that the government of that country has repeatedly provided support for acts of international terrorism. That's it. That's the legal statutory trigger for it. But obviously, there's a lot of discretion in this. And what are your thoughts about whether those threshold definitions are are met here? And then we can break down the practical consequences. So, so you're hitting on, I think, a very sort of interesting point and, and one that I sort of wrestled with um, while, while in government, which is if you just look at the text of these definitions, yeah, they're fairly easily met by lots of people. It's it's sort of the the Oprah's book club of terrorism. You you get a terrorism designation. You get a terrorism designation. But I think it brings it back to the the point that you made of well, there's a lot of other considerations that go along with with these designations. And I think you know I want to step back even further and talk about them on sort of the 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 continuum from sanctions. So you've got sort of basic sanctions under IEPA that you can use to try to change behavior, to shame individuals, to sort of call them out and apply pressure. I think it's probably a step up from that to do what Treasury did in January, which is, you know, identify the Wagner Group as a transnational criminal organization. And I I think, you know, the debates in Congress and, and certainly conversations I had in government, there is this perception that, well, the next thing on the line is is foreign terrorist uh, organization designation. There's a component of the considerations and how to use these tools that is messaging, that is sort of diplomatic in some ways in nature. Um, what is the reputational harm that is going to occur and what is reputational pressure you can apply to an organization by designating them a transnational criminal organization, designating them a foreign terrorist organization, designated country a state sponsor of terror. I think where things get tricky is when you actually look at the ramifications of some of these designations. I think it's very easy and in some ways appealing to jump straight to, well, yeah, they are doing, I mean, based upon the acts that the Wagner Group has conducted and we've seen you know, the horrific videos and the other accounts, it's fairly clear that they, they would meet the sort of statutory definition. I don't think that's that's a hard thing to get to. But in the it's a policy decision for whether designating them is is going to be effective. You know, how does this play into your bigger goals of stopping the behavior and holding people accountable? So I think there's different elements of that. And Adam, you know, this may be where you want to sort of jump back in, but one of the sort of significant things that happens if you are designated as a FTO is suddenly you are unlocking the material support for terrorism, criminal liability for that organization, but anyone sort of associated with that organization. And I think that is one area where there are ongoing policy debates, whether that would be an effective tool to bring to bear. But maybe, Adam, you could talk a little bit about the scope of what material support for terrorism uh, encompasses. Well, thanks, John. There's probably not too much debate on the face of the statutes that the legal threshold is met based on the activities that that these guys have done. I personally have grappled with this question for months about whether it nevertheless feels like 
terrorism in the sense that we have been thinking about terrorism for certainly the last 20 years, probably more accurately the last 50. I think everybody's agreed that what the FTO designation would achieve in the case of Wagner, where there have been, I think, already seven rounds of sanctions against them, including the TCO designation, is some immigration restrictions because members of foreign terrorist organizations are not allowed to enter the United States and and be what you said about the material support statute. For those uninitiated on material support, there are two major material support statutes in the federal criminal code. One is when you're supporting an actual terrorist act. And the other is when you're materially supporting a terrorist organization, and that can be giving to them your own labor, giving them money, giving them material, selling them equipment, really any sort of uh, substantive engagement can cause exposure to that. And that's a powerful tool, carries 20 years per count. If I recall correctly, there's, there's no statute of limitations on it. The other um, that I think is is pretty significant with it that it has extraterritorial application, um, provided that you have sort of you can get your hands on the individual, and so you know potentially the people that are facing criminal charges by the United States is enormous. And you you think back to what we talked about earlier in the episode about Wagner's presence in Mali, in Kath, in Sudan, and all of these places where by virtue of of those governments or or anyone sort of providing them support. Now that person is, is is potentially subject to terrorism charge material support charges by the United States. And so in a in a sense, the fact that they are so broad makes this conversation much more complicated. Arthur, I, off the top of my head, I would love to get your thoughts as a prosecutor in does it undercut sort of the effectiveness of and messaging of this type of thing where you have lots of exposure, but you're not actually charging anyone who is clearly doing this behavior that you've just sort of determined that is, you know, unlawful? So I'm thinking about this situation for the first time and and reserve the right to change my opinion in 45 seconds or something. But I, I think one of the inevitable questions that you get in an international criminal law context or the inevitable criticisms is that this is a selective prosecution. And it seems like in the situation you're describing, you might well have an inevitably selective prosecution just because so many people had potential exposure. You know, that's not necessarily per se reason not to do it if other laws require it, but it's certainly something I would consider. I, I'm a little bit instinctively uncomfortable with the idea that an organization might be too big to designate to, but it certainly the level of exposure, the level of, of necessary selectiveness that would follow it is is something I'd think about in assessing whether the messaging would be effective and whether well, the prosecutions would stand up to criticism and, and what kind of effect they'd have and how they'd be received. And John, you and I were at DOD when some of the more fun out there allegations came up, I think there were some journalists who were allegedly concerned that material support statutes would expose them to, if I remember correctly, not only you know criminal prosecution, but potentially ending up at Gitmo, which certainly was not the case, but it, it was an argument that was made loudly enough and specifically enough by people who, who matter that it did cause the government to respond and clarify how they would exercise some of these tools. More concretely, I don't know what today's statistics are, but over the last 15 years or so, DOJ's counterterrorism prosecutions, there have been far more prosecutions for material support 
or other crimes than there have been for actual terrorist acts. The statute reaches far. It is in territorial. It is broad. It's not boundless, but it's broad. The support has to be material and it has to be, you know, concrete given and intended. You know, there is a mens rea requirement. It's not willy nilly. But yes, it does have broad reach. It arguably, as you pointed out, John, does have a chilling effect. And I think one of the reasons that I've read for why there has been this hesitation to designate Wagner is that it would potentially thwart a state, a publicly stated U.S. government position of trying to help certain African countries disentangle themselves from Wagner. Now, how that works out in reality, who knows, right? If the hurdle were actually imposed, people would find a way to work it. There's always the fear of the hypothetical. And then, you know, once you have to work with a challenge, you figure out how to work with it. But that certainly has been one of the leading hesitations that I've heard for why state may not have uh, designated them yet, in addition to not having a Senate-confirmed coordinator for counterterrorism, who would be the principal officer to guide these in a, a proper way under the statutory framework that Congress enacted. Adam, you said a couple of things there. One was the sort of lack of clarity as to what happens. And I can tell you, having been in those conversations previously as the, you know, the national security lawyer, if I don't know what the consequences of an action are going to be, that makes the lawyers very nervous. And that's not to say you shouldn't do those actions. And and I, you know, if the entire world listen to lawyers, I, I don't know that that's a great world or a great foreign policy. But a lot of these, an example to look at is the designation of the IRGC, the, the Iranian military group, as a foreign terrorist organization. So that was was a, a significant sort of novel act because it was designating a component of a government as a foreign terrorist organization. And so you have the same sort of issues with, you know, everyone that is providing support is potentially exposing them to this uh, criminal liability. You also have the issue where the IRGC, a lot of the participants in it are just sort of line level soldiers and, you know, don't necessarily have, uh, have the option of saying, no, I'm not going to participate. But I think what is interesting there versus perhaps the, the the Wagner group is that Iran in many ways has, has already been isolated. And so the scope to which the IRGC itself was involved in lots of commercial activities and other sort of activities outside of Iran, such that there would be sort of exposure and material support issues, it could even potentially be less than what you're looking at with with Wagner. And so I think that's all of these questions sort of make it, I think, a challenging debate. And look, I think there is significant merit based upon the activities that Wagner has, has conducted that they are acting as a foreign terrorist organization. And I think there is credibility and important to sort of message that and take actions consistent with that. These are more than, than messages. They actually unlock legal authorities and come with legal consequences that are significant and that need to be sort of taken into account beyond just the sort of applying pressure and trying to sort of call out bad acts when you see them. So I, I don't know, maybe this, this might be a place, Adam, to sort of transition to state sponsors of terror. You know, Iran is already sort of designated as an SST. So designating the IRG as a, as a foreign terrorist organization, I think is sort of consistent with that. I have seen debates, questions, considerations of if you designate 
Wagner as an FTO, is that necessarily suggesting that now Russia is a state sponsor of terror because, you know, they are aligned and maybe they might not be sort of formally part of, of the Russian military, although as Arthur sort of pointed out, probably doesn't make that much of a difference at this point. But, you know, state sponsor of terror is a whole separate thing. I don't know, Adam, if, if you wanted to sort of uh, provide a little background on that. Not to oversimplify it, but it's a different kettle of fish. It is a different legal authority. You can be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism actually under three different authorities, all of which give the section, the secretary of state discretion to do so, whereas the foreign terrorist organization is a, you know, a single framework outlined in the Immigration and Nationality Act. John, you took the words out of my mouth with respect to Wagner as an FTO, you know, on the IRGC side, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, you know, Iran was already a state sponsor of terrorism. Russia is not a designated state sponsor, although you can argue whether they meet the legal definition. And to the extent that Wagner has these ties with the Russian state, I, I can't help but think they're not the IRGC. They're not a formal military branch uh, of the state. They're kind of this offshoot, you know, private company, but certain ties, but there's not that clear chain of command that Arthur, for example, would take interest in with uh, with atrocity crimes. At the same time, if you're not going to consider Wagner a state actor, what's their closest analog? Like maybe Haqqani. And they also don't really feel like Haqqani. They're kind of this other thing that blurs the lines where I'm not sure that we really have the vocabulary for it and shoehorning them into one of our pre-baked designation categories, uh, you know, I think that's the heart of this debate. Think of the four countries that are on that list and how draconian our, and I just mean that as an observation, not as a moral statement, right? How intense an effect that has on the U.S. relationship in these countries. Now, correlation is not causation, but state sponsors of terror, Iran, Syria, North Korea, <laughs> Cuba, we do no trade with them. There's virtually no tourism, immigration. You know, there there are severe consequences for any sorts of dealings with these countries. It's not mere coincidence that these are the countries that that happen to be on the SST list because there are severe legal consequences to engaging with them. I think you're absolutely right there. And those countries, maybe Cuba is a little bit of an outlier, and I'll get to that in a second. Those countries have typically, the United States does not have any sort of formal or significant interaction with them. They're they're very much sort of closed off from the U.S. sort of focus of the international system in a way that Russia is fundamentally different. You know, the United States to sort of designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror. That is, that is an entirely different kettle of fish than the four countries that are currently on it. It would complicate our ability to engage with Russia in multilateral fora. It would complicate our ability to engage with Russia in basic sort of military deconfliction activities, which although it's a fairly hot scenario that is happening in Ukraine, we are still have operations in Syria. We still have operations in, in other places where you know having an open line with, with the Russians is, is critical. The other sort of aspect of that that often has sort of counterintuitive outcomes is that if they were a state sponsor of terror, they would lose protections under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and they would be subject 
subject to litigation in, in U.S. courts. Now, it's a little bit more limited on, on who can actually bring a case against them. If I recall correctly, it's U.S. persons, military personnel, and, and government officials. But still, all these assets that have been frozen pursuant to sanctions, those could be attached to judgments brought by sort of private plaintiffs. And so it creates, again, the sort of uncertainty as to what that would unlock. And that has happened in other cases, actually, with Cuba under something called the, the Libertad Act that allowed victims of expropriation by the Cuban government way back when to actually sue to get funds back. There's a long sort of history with it, um, the Libertad Act or the Helms-Burton Act of the administration sort of pausing the ability of private litigants to, to try to seek those funds. But during the Trump administration, that went away. And I think there was sort of an anticipation that there would be this great sort of additional pressure on, on Cuba because of all of this litigation trying to seize back assets. As a practical matter, it sort of resulted in a lot of protracted litigation where the only winners are lawyers, which I guess I'm, you know, speaking against my own interests there. I, I, I do think that sort of illustrates that there are these secondary consequences where even if you are thinking about them and have a fairly confident sense of like, it's going to turn out this way, that is not always the case. Well, speaking against your own interests uh, can build some credibility with clients who don't want to pay you too many hours. But I want to bring us back to the Ukraine, more closely related to Ukraine, but but beyond Wagner. I mean, Arthur, if we're looking beyond the atrocities committed by Wagner forces, I mean, how, how do you see the more general ICL, you know, international criminal law landscape in Ukraine these days? So I think the two biggest things to be aware of in the past month or so are number one, the ICC arrest warrants, the International Criminal Court arrest warrants that you mentioned, and number two, the recent United States support for the establishment of a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. I'll try to just briefly, for for people who are listening and maybe haven't followed as closely, explain the state of play on both. Last month, the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Alexievna Lvova-Belova, the Russian Commissioner for Children's Rights. We don't know all the details because the warrants and the decisions approving them are under seal or private, but the court publicly announced it had charged both of them with forcible transfer and deportation of children. The difference between those two is essentially that forcible transfer is expelling somebody from a place that they're lawfully present and doing so within the same country, whereas unlawful deportation is expelling somebody from a place that they're lawfully present across a national border. They charged both of them with committing the crimes and also charged Putin with failing to prevent or punish them under a theory of superior responsibility. These are pretty novel charges in the sense that ICC has only ever arrested one person who's a national of a state that didn't consent to ICC jurisdiction, though they've issued about a dozen or so warrants. And Russia hasn't so consented. And none of those charges have been against the head of state of a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. This is a pretty big swing that the court is taking here. And then the second example of something to know about, I think, is the Aggression Tribunal. And it's on March 27th that our ambassador for global criminal justice, Beth Van Schock, explained that the U.S. supports what she called an internationalized court rooted in Ukraine's judicial system, that also includes international elements. And the example that advocates of, of such a model sometimes give is the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. She explained, we envision such a court having significant international elements in the form of substantive law, personnel, 
information sources and structure. And it might also be located, she said, elsewhere in Europe, at least at first. Now, others have pushed for a somewhat more fully international institution. But I think the significant quantity of US and European support increases the chances that we'll eventually see such a tribunal established. And I think Van Schaak referred in her statement of support to a center for collecting evidence on the crime of aggression specifically that's being set out in The Hague. It would have some of the same challenges that the International Criminal Court, I think, will have in terms of actually doing any justice in this situation. And the reason is the crime of aggression and the nature of it. So aggression is a crime that's committed at the very top levels of leadership. Uh, it's about the decision to wage an aggressive war. And that final decision is not made by a whole lot of people. So it would have similar challenges, really serious challenges, actually getting custody of somebody who was responsible, even assuming that they were able to prove that the crime of aggression had been committed. I should say for anybody who's not a close follower of international criminal institutions, jurisdictional regimes, that the reason for this separate body is that the International Criminal Court has, or asserts it has anyway, jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide that may be committed in Ukraine, because Ukraine, while not a state party, has consented to the ICC's exercise of jurisdiction, and so crimes on its territory are within the jurisdiction of the court. However, while the crime of aggression is included in the International Criminals Court statute now after amendments in 2010, it's the subject of a separate jurisdictional regime that essentially means both Ukraine and Russia would have had to consent to have the ICC have jurisdiction over aggression committed by their nationals or on their territory in order for the ICC to investigate or prosecute that crime. Also sounds like the court that the U.S. supports uh, has some legacy elements, if you will, of uh, you know what was set up in Iraq, although that was not for aggression, actually leveraging Iraqi domestic law under Saddam Hussein against Saddam Hussein and, and his regime that we tried to assist with via the regime crimes liaison office you know, 15 years ago or so that did not necessarily have the international involvement that it could have because of the issue of capital punishment being on the table, which was you know accepted in Iraqi law, but international partners did not want to engage on. Adam, another sort of example, Arthur, you mentioned uh, Cambodia, but the Special Court for Sierra Leone, where, where I happen to have worked, was another sort of hybrid model that was sort of proposed. What was interesting there in practice is that ultimately the international law crimes, the international aspects of it came to dominate. And the local law, I think for a variety of different reasons, including some concerns that the charges wouldn't be sustainable over time or didn't match up in a way that sort of made sense, that aspect of it fell away. I think what's particularly interesting about Ukraine is that it does seem that there have been very concerted efforts already to sort of establish international mechanisms. And I'm thinking of the, uh, the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, where you've got the UK, the US, and others sort of working with Ukrainian prosecutors to develop evidence to sort of identify in a more robust way the domestic criminal crimes that could be brought to bear in addition to uh, genocide, crimes against humanity, and law of war crimes. And is, is, am I correct, Arthur, that the tribunal that is being supported would do more than just sort of looking at aggression? It would, But that would be one of them, or is it just looking, looking at aggression? So I, I think my understanding is that it's just for aggression and that the reason is that the International Criminal Court 
has jurisdiction over those war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. It's unlike a place like ECCC or particularly like the International Criminal Tribunals for Yugoslavia or Rwanda, where I work, ICC is complementary, they call it, or secondary institution. That is, domestic jurisdictions get the first bite of the apple. And Ukraine is certainly doing a number of war crimes cases now. And you see, as John mentioned, you see a large number of countries both conducting their own investigations, their structural investigations being done in, from what I recall, at least half a dozen European countries into allegations of, of atrocity crimes in Ukraine, but also supporting evidence gathering processes like the ACAG. And there's been some interesting shatter the last couple of weeks with some countries, I, I can think of Austria right off the top of my head, saying that it would actually arrest Putin if he traveled there. I guess Armenia has made some suggestions that it might. And South Africa even is in a bit of a pickle right now with its upcoming BRICS meeting. That is the, you know, the economic group of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa scheduled for August. And Putin was expected to attend, usually heads of state attend that. I mean, Arthur, what do you think the ICC prosecutors are are likely to have done internally over the last month since these warrants have issued? And what does this whole development of charging Putin <laughs> and you know ac- actually getting out front here, putting some states' parties to the court in a difficult political position, what does it bode for the future of the court? That's a great set of questions, and I'm going to try to answer them one at a time. So first, in terms of what I think prosecutors are likely to be doing, and it's worth reiterating that I don't work there, in fact, didn't work there. I worked at a different court in The Hague. Typically, in an international court, most of the prosecutors work cases, not work the diplomatic side. So the ones assigned to Ukraine are probably mostly processing massive quantities of evidence that come in, particularly in this era where people are capturing evidence on their cell phones, like individual users recording and uploading videos of a missile that eventually hits something. So it really escalates the already massive quantities of, of evidence that you get in this type of investigation. So they'll be working with investigators and administrators to get that all included in electronic evidence systems with the right descriptions, tagging it for particular types of crimes and crime sites, and trying to synthesize it to prove up in individual incidents. And then if they're able to do so, find patterns and figure out if they've shown a crime, who, if anybody, might have criminal responsibility. For the ones who work directly with the prosecutor on diplomatic issues, though, I I think it's likely they'll be reaching out to states and trying to avoid a a repeat of the situation with Omar al-Bashir of Sudan, who's been under an arrest warrant from the court for something like 15 years now. And I I think you'll probably all wonder, have I just missed reading about the al-Bashir trial? And the answer is no, you haven't. Uh, He has not been transferred to The Hague in that 15 years, even though he's now been out of power in Sudan for a couple of years. And in that situation, while he was still in power, he'd traveled repeatedly to member states without being arrested, which had, I think, an effect of of undermining, to some degree, the credibility of the court. As an interesting historical note, Adam mentions that South Africa might be in a tricky position here legally in terms of their international obligations if Putin travels to the BRICS summit. South Africa was pulled up in front of the court for failing to comply with its Rome statute obligations by not arresting al-Bashir, which is the, the lead case on how Articles 27 and 98 of the Rome statute interact. Because there is, I think, an argument that South Africa has a customary international law obligation to Russia not to arrest Putin, that Article 98 is specifically designed to respect 
because they they're obligated to Russia to afford him head of state immunity under international law uh, traditionally. The Rome Statute is a little bit unclear exactly how far it protects that. State parties agree to waive immunity for their own heads of state if the head of state of the United Kingdom or something like that had been charged with a crime and traveled to South Africa, it would be clear what their obligations were. For the head of state of a non-party, Article 98 just makes it a lot more complicated. Regardless, number one, I think they'll be trying to avoid that situation. Number two, I think they'll be looking to use the warrants to generate more international support for their investigation and their work in general, suggesting that they're showing a result here in terms of their investigation. And number three, trying to keep uh, the primacy of their investigation and not have it be overtaken by any of the other mechanisms that people talk about establishing uh, in this field, including the possibility of an aggression tribunal. Fast forward to if and when we, we get to these trials. I mean, what will the courts be looking at in terms of evidence if and when some of these go to trial? And is there any difference in how the courts are likely to look at the actions of, say, official Russian state military forces versus those of Wagner or other PMCs? So I want to distinguish here between two types of evidence. First, crime-based evidence. So that's about who physically perpetrated a crime and what the consequences of that crime were. So imagine like a mortar hits a hospital, okay? Your crime-based evidence involves the crater analysis, if there is a crater, figures out where the mortar was fired from and what, what unit holds that position, confirms that the hospital wasn't being used for military purposes, identifies who was injured or killed in the strike. For applying the law to individuals and their conduct, those rules will apply equally to official forces, whether they're Ukrainian, Russian, or anybody else's, or to private military contracts. Now, if you show it's a crime, the second type of evidence is linkage evidence. And that's evidence about whether somebody higher up the chain of command is responsible for it. And it looks at whether the crime is part of organizational policy, whether it was specifically ordered or authorized, whether higher-ups knew how they reacted. So for instance, if you're in a, a military hierarchy and a commander knows, then they're under a legal obligation to take measures to have the crime investigated, have the perpetrator punished in, in shorthand, though in a state with, with a functioning military justice system, you go through a process. Here, there's potentially an additional layer of challenge, like I was saying before, for actions by private military contractors, just because the chain of command is a little bit fuzzier. So prosecutors will look really carefully for evidence about the relationship between a private military contractor and higher level leadership and try to evaluate what it allows them to prove specifically about what type of assistance or support was being provided, whether there was in certain circumstances formal incorporation or resubordination into military forces that allowed for discipline by superior officers or other factors that allow them to show the type of link that might bring criminal responsibility. Thanks, Arthur. I mean, to your last point earlier about the primacy of the ICC's investigation and relative uncertainty about competing mechanisms, with the Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act becoming law in January, the U.S. now has jurisdiction to prosecute war crimes committed anywhere in the world and no statute of limitations for doing so. It kind of finally brings war crimes up to, I mean, I might controversially say, uh, almost in parity with how we've been treating terrorism crimes the last few years. So it's theoretically possible that one day some of these people might be tried in the U.S., right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'd love to get John's take on this, too. But prosecutors have often done atrocity crime cases in the United States court. They've just most typically taken place in immigration court. 
For instance, a guy named Mohammed Jabata, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but who called himself Jungle Java, which, which stuck both because it's colorful and I think easier to pronounce, was convicted of immigration fraud in 2017 and sentenced to 30 years. His fraud had included specifically denying having committed crimes before he came over and, and having committed either genocide or murder based on discriminatory motives. And the court found that he'd, in fact, been responsible for serious crimes uh, as a leader of an armed force during the conflict in Liberia. So under this new law, because he was now present in the United States, he could have been prosecuted on allegations of war crimes as the substantive offense instead of immigration fraud. And the way the judge put it was that the seriousness of the fraud was compounded by the nature of what he was lying about. It wasn't that the the offenses were themselves aggravators, as I recall. It was that the effect on our immigration and asylum system is worse when you lie about having committed mass murder than when you lie about something else. In any event, though, the effect of the new law would be you could prosecute somebody in that kind of situation directly for war crimes. Picking up on that, Arthur, I mean, I think there are existing mechanisms within the U.S. government, whether it's at DHS or at DOJ, to sort of look into these types of issues. But, you, but you're absolutely right. It typically is taking place in the context of immigration fraud. And so it's trying to identify those people who have committed these types of atrocities and, and fundamentally to, to deport them, to, to sort of move them out of the country. I do think the ability to prosecute war crimes in U.S. courts, it's been a long time coming, and, and I'm very happy that we now have the ability to do that. I do think it actually it will, will change how the U.S. government sort of approaches these things. Prosecuting someone for a war crime or a crime against humanity is a high-profile type of activity, and I think that type of proceeding is something that will get more attention from prosecutors in the Department of Justice, you know, AUSAs, others that could use that as sort of a high profile thing, because it's a, a very sort of interesting type of case to do, but it is also bringing justice in a way that, frankly, kicking someone out for an immigration violation just doesn't carry. Well, and it, it's no coincidence that, you know, Eli Rosenbaum, who was the longtime director of DOJ's Office of Special Investigations, to kick out Nazi war criminals. I mean, his was the only office in the criminal division of the Department of Justice that did civil litigation because it was all immigration because he couldn't bring the actual war crimes prosecution against these Nazi war criminals. But he's now been named the counselor for war crimes at, at the Justice Department and is leading their efforts with respect to bringing justice for, for the issues going on in Ukraine. And we wish him luck in that role. You know, John, as we start to wrap this up, you know, I think it's fair to say that the war also has really caused more people to focus their attention on Russia-China relations. And it seems like we've seen an uptick in public reports about those countries' investments, assistance, and influence operations around the world, including in the Western Hemisphere, as well as their collaboration with other countries, such as Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, to evade sanctions. So is the international business landscape likewise becoming more fraught for Americans and American businesses wanting to do business overseas? So I think the, the first answer to that is yes, it has. And certainly, you know, even before getting into sort of the relationship between Russia and China, 
when Russia invaded Ukraine and you had the sort of corresponding response from the U.S. government, there was more than anticipated the business community sort of de-risking and sort of picking sides and getting themselves out of Russia. It was not necessarily because of uh, exposure to sanctions, but it was it was much more sort of a reputational risk. And I, I can tell you a number of clients that had significant operations in Russia closed up shop and, and moved out. And, and I think there were concerns both from, you know, what does this look like if they are being associated with country that is invading Ukraine and, and, and acting contrary to U.S. policy? There was also real concern with finding themselves sort of being caught up as leverage, sort of a, a Brittany Griner situation, but in writ large. And so very concerned about U.S. personnel that might be sort of exposed to uh, Russian judicial process or extrajudicial process as a way of getting caught in the middle and sort of dealing with these these issues. It's, it's interesting because from the United States, we sort of have a very sort of U.S. focused perspective on you know how the world operates, and it all sort of revolves around us. That's not true necessarily. <laughs> You've got relationships between China, Russia, all of all of, of the countries in their various sphere of influence. I think you saw a little bit of this with Macron and his statements regarding China. So I do think there are a lot of sort of networks and uh, relationships between Russia, China, and other countries that are, you know, there's a bit of tension with the United States at the moment. I don't think that is going to be what sort of fundamentally changes the business appetite. But I do think that there are aspects related to privacy, data security laws, and other sort of increasing tension, not because of a relationship between Russia and, and, and China, but just by virtue of China trying to sort of express a greater sort of influence, that that is also creating some tension with, with companies that find themselves in both places. It's getting harder and harder to operate comfortably across those borders. I mean, indeed, the BRICS countries mentioned earlier are considered the foremost rival to the G7 block of economies. And they've certainly got their own interests and relationships that either don't involve the United States or run counter to the United States. The reaction and the fear of, of companies doing business in Russia a year ago and, and trying to get out, you know, certainly after a couple months, Russia took affirmative steps to try to stop companies from leaving and, and seizing assets and, and taking other actions, making it hard to leave, which is never a good position to be in. You had earlier mentioned in the SST context, triggering exceptions to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, really the, the FLATO Amendment with respect to uh, you know state sponsorship of terrorist acts. You know, not notwithstanding the SST, but there are obviously a lot of civil actions going on right now in various tribunals. And how do you expect civil judgments against Russia to play out in the coming year? You know, as an example, last week, the Hague's Arbitration Tribunal ordered Russia to pay the Ukrainian energy company Naftogaz $5 billion for expropriating its assets in Crimea since 2014. Judge Heichler for Judge Lamberth, back in 2015, it ordered Russia to pay Chabad $43 million and then $50,000 a day in penalties that have just accumulated because Russia isn't going to pay. I think the amount owed under the judgment now is something around $180 million. So what teeth will this and other judgments like it actually have? So I think you mentioned two different types of judges, judgments yeah. sort of against, you know, on behalf of, of, of a state against the other state versus sort of private litigation. I think there has been a lot of conversation about, oh, well, for the, the seized assets, we can use that to sort of pay 
victims of the Russian aggression, or you know, we can go after you know assets of oligarchs in the United States. I think what, what fundamentally is, is challenging there is that even though there's significant tension with Russia, even though that you've got something like you know the ICC warrant out for Putin, I don't see at this point the U.S. waiving immunity for sort of Russian claims against Russia. I, I think that is still such a fundamental part of, of the international order. That is not something that is going to happen. I mean, I think we talked about the BRIC and the sort of customary international law, potential obligation to recognize the immunity of Putin going to those places. I think that will continue to exist with respect to sort of private litigation against and trying to attach and seize the assets of the Russian state. You know, there may be there may be more things that happen in sort of international state to state tribunals. Um, and we'll see if there's uh, expropriation of grain, timber and other things that are happening in Ukraine. But I I would sort of put myself as, as pessimistic as to whether there will be a sea change in the ability of, of, of private parties to get the assets of Russian state actors. It's all a really interesting conversation, uh, both on the criminal side and the civil side and the political side and everything that we've touched on today. Any closing thoughts from either of you? I'm happy to share something. I, I you know, I think it's interesting because we've talked about, you know, with sanctions, with some of the different designations and the prosecutions that, that Arthur talked about, you know, we've talked about mechanisms for retribution, punishing people who have done a bad thing. We've talked about these mechanisms for accountability, holding them accountable for, you know, the acts that have been committed. And we've talked about, you know, using sanctions as, as a way of changing behavior. It'll be very interesting to see how all of these mechanisms are being brought to bear at the same time sort of play out with respect to the conflict itself. Is this something that is going to push towards resolution of the conflict? Is it something that's going to potentially impede resolution of the conflict? Like, what do you do if the ICC still has a warrant out for the arrest of the head of a security council member? At some point as part of this resolution process, do they have to draw that back? And is that something that is you know, going to be sort of worthwhile because it's uh, you know, on the road to sort of peace presumably peace and reconciliation in Ukraine? Or is that something that, you know, you can't walk back from and it's going to potentially have sort of negative effects down the line for international justice efforts? So I'm sort of mindful of, of, of all of these different ways of addressing and looking at this issue. Even with what we've talked about, it's still unclear how things are going to play out in the future. With that, John, Arthur, thank you both again for joining us this week. Our guests tonight have been Arthur Traldi of Lexpac Global Services and the Brandeis Center and John Dermody, counsel at O'Melvin Ina Myers. I'm Adam Perlman, Managing Director of Lexpat and a fellow at George Mason University's National Security Institute. Thanks for listening to National Security Law Today. Please share this lengthy episode with a friend or colleague and discuss the issues we've presented thoughtfully. If you have any feedback for us, please reach out via Twitter at ABA NATSEC or by email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. The producer of this podcast is Elisa Poteet in her individual capacity. Our editor and co-producer is Francis Berkham. Our program manager is Rebecca Salido and co-producer is Holly McMahon, as well as the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security and its advisory committee, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again. See you all next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates 
or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.